Hey, podcast listeners, it's Samir. And today on the Colin and Samir show, I'm really excited to bring you a conversation with my good friend, Ben Nempton. A little background on Ben. Ben created and starred in a MTV show called The Buried Life. The show got its name from Ben's realization that the things that he truly wanted to do in life were getting buried by work, school, and just other day-to-day tasks. So Ben and his friends asked themselves a question. What did they want to do before they died? That led them to creating a bucket list, a list that they checked off while filming a documentary TV show. Some of the items on that list were writing a New York Times bestseller, which they did, playing basketball with President Obama, which they did, having a conversation with Oprah and delivering a baby. All those things they did. And you'll hear more of those stories and how those stories actually came to life on this episode. What's funny is that some of these ideas feel so similar to what's getting produced on YouTube today, but at the time that Ben and his friends made this show, it was before YouTube even existed. Today, Ben is a world-renowned public speaker, and he shares his story with groups all over the world. We had him on the show to talk about his journey with mental health, especially as a creator. We also talked about how to prioritize the goals that are most important to you and how you can write your own list. Actually, Ben just released a new book called The Bucket List Journal. If you want to check that out, we put the link in our description of this podcast. It's at writeyourlist.com. It's a book that helps you write your own bucket list, which I imagine after listening to this episode, you'll all be really inspired to do. All right. I'm honestly just so excited to bring this conversation to you guys. So please enjoy our conversation with Ben Nempton. All right, Ben, welcome to the show. Good to be here. It's great to have you here, man. We've had so many great conversations over the years. I'm glad that we get to record this one. Um, The first time we ever met was actually in the Yes Theory office here in Venice. I don't know if you remember that. I do remember that. We were deep in editing the Wim Hof Mm. piece, which, you know, in Mm -hmm. classic Yes Theory fashion, we had four days to to edit a movie together. That's a long time. Yeah, for it was, yes for, it was, it was ages for Yes Theory. Uh, but we met then, and I remember the guys positioning it to me like, you know, this is the guy that that inspired um, Yes Theory, like what he did. And that's kind of when I went back and I was like, oh, wait, this is all familiar to me um, with the buried life and kind of all this stuff that was before its time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just curious for you to give, how do you give your background like, how do you tell your story in a condensed way? I've been trying to do that for 15 years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it's, I, it starts, I'm Canadian. So I grew up in Victoria, BC. And ironically, the whole journey for me started in a place that was pretty dark, pretty dark in the sense that like, I went through my first mental health crisis before I started Buried Life. Mm. And I was, I, I was playing pretty high level rugby. I was on the under 19 national rugby team and I always just put a lot of pressure on myself. I don't really know why, like my parents didn't put pressure on me. I just was always wanting to do well. And so I was, but I like, I was kind of living the dream, quote unquote. Like I made the national rugby team and that was a big deal where I grew up. It's like football in the South mm. is rugby on the West coast of Canada. Mm. I had an academic scholarship, like all my pals were going to school at, at the school I was going to. And I was, I was really, I was what I thought I was living the dream. But then I started to get anxiety around the World Cup because I played this high pressure position. I was like field goal kicker and I was also 
calling the plays. So I was the fly half. And so, and in high school, at the end of our season, at the end of the last game, I, I missed a kick that could have won us the game. And I was like, okay, can't happen at the World Cup. Like, this is, this is my shot. And you know when you're at that age where you don't have any perspective? Like, there's no context as to, like, little things feel like it's earth-shattering. Mm. And that miss of that kick was earth-shattering for me. And I couldn't even imagine missing a kick at the World Cup. Like, this was my, this is what I've been working for. Yeah. This is my identity. This was, like, this was everything. So... I would, so I'd practice every day. I'd practice my kicks. And then I started to think about at night, shit, what if I miss a kick? Like, what if I blow this opportunity? And this anxiety would just sort of build over time. And I would worry about my kicks. I'd, I, I started to lose sleep because I couldn't sleep because I was thinking about this. And all of this lack of sleep, this pressure, I started to slide into a depression. And I didn't even know what this was. Like, I just sort of slowly started to get more and more debilitated by these feelings of anxiety, depression, to the point where I was unable to really like make decisions in the sense that I was like stuck in this indecision. So I drive to school, but I couldn't get out of the car. So I just sit in the car and then I drive back home and I dropped out of school. And then I couldn't go to rugby practice. Like I get my gear, I'd stand in my parents' hallway before I got in the car and I just couldn't get myself to go to practice. And so eventually the coach was like, well, you know, I got cut from the team. And I just like blamed it on an injury. And I wasn't talking about it to any of my friends. I was just like slowly going downhill. I didn't even really notice what was happening. What did people think when like you got cut from the team? Like what was the, your peers and your family? What were they like? I mean, my family knew what was going on. They were trying to help. And they were like trying to get me to talk with a a therapist. And I was just hesitant to do so. I, I know... I just didn't know that other people were struggling with something like that. I just thought I was broken. So I didn't understand why. Yeah, like and so t- that, that was the worst part. I'm just curious. Like, did you even have a vocabulary for how you were feeling? No. This is, and this was like before people were talking about mental health in a, yeah. like as a national conversation. I mean, this was, you know, mm-hmm. this is 2000, you know, early 2000s. Being in sports, was there any element of your mind that was like, come on, Ben, suck it up? Totally. Yeah. Cause at least for me growing up playing sports, like that was so present, right? Like anytime I've felt adversity, it's like, come on, man. Or any like personal, you know, even just barriers. It's like, come on, man, like suck it up. And that's, that's like a voice in my head, right? Just conditioning from coaches or exactly. Yeah. And that's the only kind of leadership you have at right. that time mm-hmm. that you respect is your coach. Yeah. You're not listening to your teachers really. You're not even your parents. You're doing the opposite of what they say a lot of the times, just because of that dynamic as a, as a teen. So your coaches are your, your mentors. So all you hear from them is like, push through, suck it up. And then as a guy too, you just don't have that awareness at that age that this type of thing can never happen and how to, the tools to deal with it. So I had no idea how to grapple with this. I just thought, I, I just kind of thought it was over. Like, I just thought like, I've worked hard for all this stuff and now it's gone. And now, and that's what I would think about at night. So it was this self-perpetuating downward spiral. And so luckily at the end of the semester my, that I dropped out of, my friends literally pulled me out of the house. They just rallied me and took me to a new town that they were going to, to work for the summer. So they bring me to this new town and now I'm forced to do things that I have been just 
not forced to do. Like I have to get a job. So I, cause I have to make some money. Mm. So I start to slowly feel some self-worth and some confidence because I'm doing something. Right. So I start to be like, okay, I can actually like go and be out in the normal world and do a job. And, mm-hmm. and then I started to slowly talk about what I was going through to my, to my friends and eventually a therapist, which is, was the biggest thing. And I started to understand like, okay, my friends have been through this type of thing. Maybe not exactly this thing, but they've been through some stuff. So like, maybe I'm not totally crazy. Like maybe I'm not, you know, I realized I wasn't alone and then that really helped. And then the biggest thing was in high school, you have this Petri dish of friends where you don't really understand that there's a full world out there of different types of people. And a lot of times you're not going to find your crew in high school. Sometimes you will, but, and I had great friends in high school, but they were all pointing me in this direction of rugby, you know, all mm-hmm. of the, this, this, this path that I thought I wanted, but I started meeting different types of kids and they were doing different creative things and they were doing things like starting their own businesses and they had traveled. And I realized that they were giving me energy. So I felt energized by being around these new people. And I started to understand like, okay, some people give me energies. And I started to have the awareness that some people draw energy from me. So I was like, I'm going to lean into these relationships of people that give me energy. And I decided to try and only surround myself with people that inspired me. And that totally changed my life. Like that is the one decision that completely shifted. If I look back, you know, it's like there's a one little shift that ultimately in the long run totally changes your path. That was it. Who were some of those people in the early days that inspired you and what was it about them? So the first kid that inspired me was a guy that I knew from high school, but he wasn't, um, I didn't know him too well. He was a couple years younger than me. And he started a clothing line out of nowhere. And I was just like, I saw the website and I was like, dude, how did you do this? Like, you don't have any experience in fashion. You don't have any money. You just started this really dope clothing line. And he was like, what do you mean? I just like borrowed some money and I, and I did it. And I was like, well, can I help? Like, I just wanted yeah. to get involved. And so I ended up helping him get on this blog. Remember like the cool hunting days when they, like there were just blogs of people that just, so there's this blog called joshspear.com and he was like, he'd post stuff that he thought was cool and it just ended up getting a lot of traction. So we sent him his clothing and I had like found his contact and emailed him. And, and so anyways, we got him on this blog and, and I was just like, wow, I can't believe I did that. Like that was easier than I thought. And I was like, if he made a clothing line, like I wonder what I could do. And deep down, I'd always wanted to like make a movie with my friends or make a TV show with my friends. And there was only one kid that I could think of that was doing this. And he was from my neighborhood and his name is Johnny. And Johnny made videos in the summers. He made summer videos. And at the end of the summer, he would screen them. And it was all the friends. Yeah. And he also was making movies like at McGill in his first year. And Which so, is a university. Yeah, McGill, McGill University, university Montreal. Yeah, yeah. And he would film his friends in there. They would have this frosh week in the beginning. It was sort of like the Olympics of drinking. And he made this video. It was kind of like jackass meets like, it was like an inspirational party video. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, <laughs> it made you just want to go out and have fun with your friends. I was like, I called him up and it took me like a couple times to get a hold of him because he didn't know me really. Like he actually took my sister to prom. So he sort of <laughs> like, we knew each other, but not really. And I was like, Johnny, you make movies. I want to make a movie. Let's make a movie. And he's like, I was just traveling Cuba with my friend Dave. And I was like, I know Dave, you two years younger than me in high school. I was like, you call Dave, I'll call your older brother, Duncan. Cause serendipitously Duncan had come up to me in the bar one night and be like, Hey, we should do something. 
was like, oh, I just talked to your brother. I was like, we should make a movie. So we all started talking about making this film. This is 2006, by the way. And so that's how it all began. And ironically, the whole premise came from a poem that Johnny was assigned to an English class, like about a month after we started talking about this film, because we didn't know what the film was going to be about. And we were coming up with all these ideas and we realized what was one of like the worst ideas uh, for the film drive a, I think it was probably to drive a dump truck across Canada and collect pennies. Got it. (laughs) In the back (laughs) and then try and fill it up. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Sale pirate before it's time. Yeah. Yeah. That is today. That's a YouTube YouTube video. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We had another one. We wanted to sail a pirate ship around the world. (laughs) That's another, that's another YouTube Um, video. Yeah. It's good. And so skydive with sharks. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Uh, and so we, so Johnny gets to sign this poem. We're, we, we keep coming up with, this is like our first time ever experience a creative roadblock. Cause we're doing, we realize we're trying to, we're coming up with a lot of these ideas of a film we think we should make, you know? Um, and we hadn't got to the cool ideas like the dump truck idea. We were starting to think about a traditional documentary, which a story we can tell and help someone. And we realized like, okay, what if we just, could make anything. Um, and we had all like, we like money was no object. So we're starting to have this, this conversation and Johnny gets assigned this poem called the buried life, buried life, uh, written by a poet named Matthew Arnold, 1852, 150 years ago. Johnny reads this poem cause it's homework. And he sends the poem to us. He's like, guys, read this poem. This poet is talking about the same thing we're talking about right now. And it's that we have these things that we want to do all these dreams and we're inspired to go after them, but then they get buried by the day-to-day and we push them and we never do them. We talk about them, but we never do them. And we're like, okay, this guy talked about this in 1852. We're not the first people to feel like this. Let's borrow this name for the film. We'll call the film The Buried Life. And the next thing was to make a list of all those buried dreams. And the way we did that was actually by thinking about death. (laughs) Ironically, we, we came up with this question, what do you want to do before you die? Because when we thought about death, it made us think about life. It made us understand that our time was limited. It cut through all the BS. And we're like, okay, we're going to die. What do we want to do? And, and, and the answer to that question became the bucket list. Our bucket list grew out of thinking about if we had all the money in the world, if we had the ability to do ever, anything, and remember that you're going to die. So whatever it is you want to do, you can do it. And that's where the list came from. And so that's... And we wrote it collectively. And is this list that I'm looking at in front of me, the, that list? Yeah, that's pretty much that's the original, pretty much the original list. list. Yeah, there's a couple of things on there that I have done personally. Yeah. But that is effectively the list. So I'm going to read a couple of these. Yeah. Because I, I think what's fascinating to me every time I've looked at this list of yours um, is there's some that are pretty wild, right? Um yell in court, you want the truth, you can't handle the truth, which you haven't done yet. That, no. one's, not, that one's not crossed <laughs> this off. This has got to be real. <laughs> play, play basketball with President Obama. Yeah. Um, make a toast at a stranger's wedding. These are, these are some of these. I'm not going to reveal which ones you've done, but um, you've done a lot of these. Do yeah. a sketch with Will Ferrell. <laughs> and then on the other side of it, you know, there's donate blood. Mm-hmm. Plant a tree. <laughs> <laughs> Run a marathon. Fall in love. Mm-hmm. 
how did you guys come up with this list? Like where, where does this list come from? Because I think for me, when I think of bucket list, what's so interesting, I think of the craziest things, right? And there are some things on this list that are the craziest things, but you also boil down some really simple things like fall in love. Mm -hmm. And I think when I think about the day-to-day, -day, especially of being an entrepreneur or being a creator, it is incredibly easy to bury these tasks, even like make quality time to call my mom yeah. is something that I would put like in, after reading this list, list, I would put it on my, like the, the goals for this year, right. Mm -hmm. Is like quality time with my parents. Mm -hmm. And it's something that is so easy for me to bury in my day to day of actually, you know what, what's more important is I progress this thing in work or you know, do this thing. It's mm -hmm. easy to bury, even if you are on the phone with your mom. Yeah. I was thinking about this. Yeah. I was on the phone with my mom yesterday, mm. but it was in the middle of the workday and I was barely there. I realized yeah. in the conversation, I was barely even listening to her. Yeah. And I said goodbye. And it was one of the weirdest experiences of, that is something I want to prioritize. But right. when it came to me, I wasn't even there for it. Mm -hmm. I, right. You know, mm -hmm. so it is something you do have to think about. Mm -hmm. as a creator and just as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, especially when you think about the, the real regrets that people have at the end of their life. And that is one of the five top regrets of the dying is it's around relationships. So Bronnie Ware, who was a um, palliative care nurse, wrote a book called The five, Top Five Regrets of the Dying. And one of the top five regrets is I wish I would have stayed in contact with friends. So that's around relationships. I think that also connects what you talked about is you know, connecting with your parents and with people that you love in meaningful ways also is one of the other regrets is I wish I would have had the courage to express my feelings. And so both of these don't cost any money. Both of these are so easy to put off. But when you think about if you are, if you die and they call and you die and Samir's doing your eulogy, mm -hmm. you know, he's going to talk about He's not going to talk about how much money you made. He's going to talk about, <laughs> maybe Samir would know. <laughs> He's going to talk about how you were there for him when, you, when he needed you. He's going to talk about how, what type of person you were, your, your, your values, your, your, your character, um, and, how, and your impact probably on him and, and on everyone else. And so that's why we stumbled into this idea of thinking about death but it was, it's such an important thing because yeah. it actually puts, it frames your life in real perspective. And it's those moments with the people that you love that you're going to value the most. And even having the awareness, it's, it's human nature for this stuff to creep in. Like this is the, the biggest regret that we have in our life is I wish I would have lived for me versus what other people want or the you know, what other people ex expect of me. And so I think a lot of these regrets come out of subconsciously putting th these things off, even if we don't realize that we're doing them. Because I've been the same way. I, I, I talk with my mom 50% of the time. I'm just kind of trying to get off the phone because I mm -hmm. have stuff to do. Yeah, yeah. And I'm never going to remember the stuff that I'm doing. Like if Oof. I zoom yeah. out and go five years, 10 years down the road, even... Later that day, I won't even remember what I did after I got on that phone because I was so eager to just get the stuff done. But that time or that relationship with your someone you love, you are going to 
value and remember. And when we, when we wrote the list, the one thing that we did that I think was important is we, there was just no rules. Like I, I, mm-hmm. I think usually when you think about a list, you think like adventure travel, mm-hmm. but we were like, if you can do anything and if you had all the money, like what, what's everything that's important to you. And the thing that was so important or that was so liberating for me at that time was to actually say what I wanted because up to that point, yeah. I was living the high school dream, but it wasn't my dream. And I didn't even know it. And for the first time in my life, I was writing down what I truly wanted. And they were stupid things like grow a mustache or (laughs) drive a dump truck across the country, collecting pennies. And they were meaningful things like pay off my parents' mortgage and fall in love and crazy things like go to space, you know, sit with Oprah or make a TV show. But it didn't even matter that we were never going to actually do them. Like we, we didn't think we would ever do them. That, that was not the point. The point was that it was going to be fucking fun to try. And we're just going to go and, and give it a shot and do it. And then what, we re- what I realize now in, in looking back is by writing down those goals, that was funnily enough, the, the very first step to achieving them. And it felt like, you know, we were just doing it for fun, but it actually started the process and the next piece of that process was just taking action. We had no idea how we we're going to do any of them. We, we were laughing when we wrote some of these things down, like play basketball with Obama. That was the most impossible thing we could ever think of. But we're like, we're going to go on a two-week road trip. We're going to figure it out. Even if we have to bike on this road trip, we're going to go do it. We're going to go after our list. We're going to cross off as many as we can. And then we're going to help other people with their list. And we're going to ask them, what do you want to do before you die? And if we can help them, then we will. And that's going to be our documentary. And it'll be a two-week road trip. We'll show the film to our friends at the end of summer. And that'll be it. And so we just started to hustle to get this road trip off the ground. Like it was, it was, it was at the end of the summer of 2006. So we worked jobs throughout the school, throughout the summer. We would cold call companies out of the phone book. We pretended we had a production company mm-hmm. and just try and get through to the CEO of the company. A local juice company paid for our gas. Um, it was actually, that was like the scariest phone call I ever made. It was like the first cold call. Yeah. And I got right through to the CEO. I was like, hi, my name is Ben. I'm uh, yeah. producing a documentary and mm-hmm. I'd like to talk with your CEO. I think it's a great opportunity. <laughs> and, the, and so what was the opportunity just to have like your sticker? <laughs> I what was the opportunity? Like, Well, it's a good question because this is like, there, it, this is pre-social. I mean, yeah. Facebook was at, high, at at universities. Twitter yeah. had just launched. Right. But yeah, there like was no influencers. Where were you going to distribute this film? Like, you're like to look, your we're friends. We're going to be on some packed highways. Yeah. <laughs> and your logo is going to be on the side of our That's van. right. We're talking eyeballs. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're talking, talking I-90. We're I-90. talking I-90. Yeah, I've seen the billboards. <laughs> a lot of people see those. This was like, we built a sponsorship deck. And it was like, you'll be on our website. Yeah. You'll, we'll talk about you in the news. Right. We'll go on radio. We'll yeah. go on local TV in, in BC. We're making t-shirts. Your logo's on the t-shirt. We're giving those t-shirts away. Maybe 10. We're going <laughs> to give them away. We're going to put you on the side of the bus, the RV, yeah. <laughs> which was a 1977 something Dodge Coachman. We got like, and they're like, please associate my brand. with that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, but the, the CEO, like I get through this guy and I got so lucky because he was like an ex-hippie and he's just, I went through the whole idea. I was like, we're, 
going after our dreams and we're helping other people and we're making a documentary. I was so nervous. And he goes at the end of the, after I finally stopped my pitch and he goes, dude, a lot of people are going to tell you, you can't do this. Telling you, you're sitting on a gold nugget. Wow. And he's like, we'll help you out. We're going to send you juices. We're going to pay for you. Like, we'll give you, they gave us like two grand. And that's like all. That's great. Two grand from this company to pay for our gas. We, they literally sent juices to like five cities so we could pick them up in coolers along the way. Wow. We got Red Bull gave us Red Bulls. A granola bar company gave us granola bars. We lived off those three things. And we got a secondhand camera on eBay. We built a website. And we started throwing parties too as fundraiser, which was, was, was when I started to like actually have that first taste of being like an entrepreneur was throwing a party. Mm-hmm. They were so fun. We made a bunch of cash. And so, you know, a bunch of cash. We probably saved up like 5K. The whole thing probably cost us like 7K. We took out a $2,000 loan from Dave's dad. Wow. We had to pay back. And, uh, and we're like, let's go. End of 2006 and the last two weeks of August, we, we hit the road. And we almost didn't go because the mechanic told us the RV wasn't going to make it back. And we didn't have enough money to tow the RV back. And it wasn't our RV. <laughs> but we put on the side of the RV we, from a local skate shop. They made it. We call them decals in Canada. You call them um, decals. Amazing. Okay. Decals. Yeah. Decals. decals. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So we, Canadians. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, I know. Innovators. Innovators. Yeah. <laughs> so we, so it, said, it said on the side of the bus, the RV, one film, four guys, a hundred things to do before you die. Logo sponsors. That's cool. And we, and we took yeah. off. What and was the first... The first Thing list you, item? Yeah, first list item. The first list, it was uh, be a knight for a day. Okay. okay. <laughs> Got a full suit of armor <laughs> with chain mail, a sword and everything. I was working as a beer rep at the time. So I worked for Molson. So I, I would do my rounds at the counts during the, the morning. And then in the afternoon, I would cold call and try and get sponsors. So I was able to trade some beers to my friend that managed a restaurant for a gift certificate, the restaurant that I could trade to this woman who rented this suit of armor usually by the day for free for two hours. I had it. So I, I, we bring it back to the RV and it's very heavy. And I mean, it's real. like if you walked into a castle and you saw like a knight standing, mm-hmm. that's what this was full helmet, full chain mail, full sword. <laughs> okay. Go downtown. Of course we call all the local media and we're like, we're doing a giant stunt. <laughs> Our first idea is we're going to skydive into the press launch. Then we, first of all, don't know how to skydive. Yeah, yeah. Second of all, don't even realize you can't do that. Like yeah. you have to clear airspace. Like, so we had sort of pitched this skydive idea and they're like, what? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so press comes down and here I am dressed up in this janky nice outfit. And I, we pull up into the RV and I'm like, this is a terrible idea. Like <laughs> I, I don't know what I'm going to do out there. And the guys are like, well, you're a knight, Ben, you can, you figure it out. It's like, all right, step out of the RV, just awkward silence. But as I step out, there's a six-year-old boy walking with his mom, holding his mom's hand, his other hand, he's holding a plastic sword. So he sees this knight walk onto the street and he's just like, eyes go wide, drops his mom's hand. He runs over to me with his sword and he's like, goes down on one knee and bows his head right in front of me. So I'm like, two options, I either like, off with his head or I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. like a night. Like yeah. So I went for the ladder. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, we, we got it. Right yeah. <laughs> so I night him. Uh-huh. And then these other kids 
start coming around. I, and I, all these kids are around me. I'm knighting all wow. these kids. And of course, the news is there. And I'm walking all these kids across the street. And next day, we leave for the road trip. And we're like, great. We already crossed off be a knight. And we pick up the newspaper and we crossed off make the front page of the newspaper that oh, wow. same day. And was the news there because you called them? You yeah. asked them to be? Yeah, we asked them. We, cool. And, and I, they thought it was going to be much better. But I think, <laughs> I, I think though, that's, that's an unbelievable yeah. lesson for creators of all types. Yeah. You know, I think some of the best artists today, like Little Nas X, you know, like when one of their songs goes viral, they often say, this isn't an accident because I was reaching out to people. I was posting on Reddit threads yep. about the fact that I was going to do this. You know, that I think like, mm -hmm. if you want people to talk about what you're doing, the first thing you can do is ask people to talk about what you're doing. Or yeah, tell make them. your own press. Which yeah. is, you're touching on the, the well, probably the biggest barrier that stops people from achieving their, their goals. And I think as creators, it's, it's very consistent, which is the fear of what other people think or fear of failure. So you don't know how this is going to be received. Therefore, you don't want to put yourself in that vulnerable position to look like a failure. And that is a human fear. That is something that we all feel. And it's, you never conquer that fear. You have to push through. I mean, talk about, yes, there is seek discomfort. That's the whole idea mm -hmm. is like, you're actually, that is not a negative feeling. It makes you feel anxious and nervous doesn't mean it's bad. That's actually means you're growing. So that discomfort that you push through when you feel that, you know, when I was in that RV, I could have very easily been like, guys, this is a dumb idea. Yeah. Like, I don't want to do this. Let's do something else. I, I, this is my hometown. I'm in front of news. Like yeah. it's, it's hard enough for, we didn't even tell people what we were doing, let alone like, and now we're in this position where we're broadcasting to, you know, everyone, this, like, I'm going to walk out as a, what the fuck am I going to do? You know? And I could have just turned, we could turn around or done yeah. something else or yeah. just gone out there as a, as a unit. I had plus me on my own, yeah. you know? So, but I did it. And when you put yourself in that position, when you are vulnerable, even if it's not the outcome that you think that you want, something good will come of it. At the very least, you learn something about yourself and you grow. But when I look back, we put ourselves on the line so many times. By the way, the only way that I did that was because I had three other guys that were pushing me to do it. And right. the other piece that's missing when it comes to these personal passions, and if you're a creator and you're on your own, sometimes it's hard to continue to push yourself. Yeah. You need an accountability buddy. You need someone beside you. You guys can speak to this when you talk about like how close you were to not continuing with Colin Samir. Yeah. I was there. It was Razor thin. It, I mean, it, it tipped over to the other edge where it was over. Yeah. You were, you were there. You were like, I was talking to you a lot. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's something that I think is really interesting to talk about it. And we can talk about it now or we yeah. can talk about it in a minute, but you know, just coming back to that moment of putting all, all of us, putting ourselves out there. And it led to the front page of our local newspaper which led to the front page of our provincial newspaper, which led to national news. And all of a sudden we're on this road trip and the whole country is talking about it. Wow. And we start to get emails coming through our website and people are like, Hey, I saw your list online. I saw number eight, ride a bull. My uncle has a bull ranch, you know, in, in, in outside of Calgary, he can get you on a bull. Or I saw 
make a toast at a stranger's wedding. My best friend's getting married. I'm the best man, dude. I can get you in. <laughs> right? We got invited to 12 weddings in two weeks to come make toasts. And then people started sending us their dreams, asking for our help. So we started to get all of these dreams come in. You know, I've always dreamed of like, like kicking a field goal at, at, a, at an NFL game. I've always dreamed of flying a fighter jet. I've always dreamed of riding a horse through a drive-through. <laughs> and we had this moment where we're like, holy shit, like what's going on? Check our inbox and it's just, and we come back from that two week road trip. And we're like, I think we got to keep doing, keep doing this. And one of the emails that came in was a producer. He's like, Hey guys, I saw you on the news. I want to help you cross off two list items. Number one, give away a hundred dollar bill. I'm going to send you a hundred dollar bill. Number two, make a TV show. And those were both list items. Give away a hundred dollar bill. And number 54 would make a TV show. And he was uh, a big producer in Canada. So we met him on our way back from the, two, in two weeks, we come back, do this little loop, come back through Vancouver. We meet him for breakfast at a fancy hotel in Vancouver. And he was like, I think this could be a really meaningful show. I think we should go to Toronto and talk with networks there. And, and we're like, all right. So we come back, we're like, whoa, boys, we got to yeah. keep going here. Yeah. And so we went back to school, but, and, and Johnny cut a short trailer and we put it on YouTube and it made the front page of YouTube. It's 2006. And so, and coincidentally, that lined up with our trip to Toronto when we started to meet with production companies and, and, uh, and networks. And so we basically ended up getting offered a show in Canada by MTV Canada, 2007. We get the deal. And the deal is we own the show. We own the Buried Life. You guys are talent. You guys get a nominal talent fee. Oh, uh, interesting. But it's, uh, this is, but you, but but you get, you to get do this it. fucking show. Yeah, you get to do it. So MTV, just to be clear, MTV Canada owns the show Owns the the buried life. Owns the IP. Owns the IP of the buried life. And you guys are talent. Which essentially means they could turn it into the real world model. And this is the real world world. This yep. is, yeah. And this is the era. For right? sure. And they're, they're, so basically it's like their, their premise and their thought is probably like, this is the first cast of the buried yeah. life. And we can have another cast. Yeah. And, and, and I don't know. And we weren't executive producers. I think we were like. Interesting maybe co-EPs or something. Was it just so appealing to you at the time though? Like what was your initial reaction was just like, holy shit, MTV is offering us a show. Well, I mean, this is my dream. Yeah, yeah. of course. Make yeah. a I show mean, with crazy. your friends. And, like, and how old are you at the time? Like 20, yeah, 22. Yeah, that's crazy. And I there's no better place to land than yeah. MTV at this time. At that time, yeah. Totally. And so we're like, okay. And we start to go through it and we start to read this stuff. And we're just like, you know what? really what we want is to keep doing this. Like that feeling that we had yeah. on that road trip, it was magic. Like stuff just happened. And for the first time in my life, I was actually starting to feel a sense of who I was, a sense of purpose. And we all were having the time of our lives. You know, we could feel, we knew it was something special. We knew that if we just stuck to this feeling and what we were doing, that we could continue to, build it. And, and, and honestly, the big dream was MTV, like of course. the U S right. Yeah, of like, mm -hmm. And we just thought, you know, and we were making a documentary and we're like, 
our whole filter, this is so funny thinking about this. The only thing that we stuck to was what would our friends think is cool? What would our friends like? Would this inspire our friends? Because our goal was to inspire our friends to do things that we knew they wanted to do, but weren't doing them. Like one buddy was going to medical school, knew he wanted to open a restaurant. Like all, and so we're like, Mm. how can we show people and not tell them how to live their life, but show them how much fun it is. And then the hope was that they would get FOMO, but not from missing a party, but from missing out on life. And that was the feeling that we were trying to convey. And we knew that was going to be, if we weren't in control of the show, that was not going to happen. So we knew that if we're going to do a show, we had to be executive producers. We, and we're like, we respectfully passed on the TV show. We're like, we're making the doc. And that was our vehicle at this point. Oh, wow. And so we went back to school. We fundraised throughout the year. Dude, we raised a significant amount of money, considering it's 2007, from Levi's. We came down to San Francisco. So we wow. pitched Levi's in their headquarters. Yeah. Palm Pilot at the time. You know, well, the, Palm Pilot. Yeah, of course. Wow. I, yeah, but I haven't heard those two words mm-hmm. together well, in, since 2007. Yeah, Palm Pilot being the Blackberry looking phone with the yes. stylus. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you haven't heard from them because we put yeah. them out of business. <laughs> <laughs> so you buried them. Us, yeah. yeah. So we, you know, we raised maybe like, 350K. Wow. And, that's may, and maybe another extremely significant. 250K in in kind. We got like, we, so we bought the per, this purple transit bus that we got from a nudist in Vancouver who had sure. changed mm-hmm. the whole insides and like retrofitted it. It was all purple. <laughs> we got, and then we put all of our money into a crew from LA director, two videographers, a sound guy. They followed us in another RV for two months. So this is the second tour and we're going big and we're going after bigger list items. And so that's where all the money went. We didn't take a dime, put it all into permits. So, you know, mm-hmm. we had no clue what we were doing. You know, we had to get visas to come down to the U.S. and film, you know, expensive to put a crew up and pay yeah. their L.A. salaries for two months and put them up in hotels and the yeah. RV and gas and all that stuff. So we're doubling down and we just now take off for two months go straight to Burning Man, 2007. Of course. And we're like, tell our director, meet us at Burning Man. No idea that you, there's no cell service. Yeah. <laughs> we don't see him for the first two days. <laughs> he finally finds our purple bus. He's like, guys, okay. And this yeah. was not a good start. I've right. been here for two days. Yeah. <laughs> sleeping yeah. in random people's places. Cause like, and we're like, oh, yeah. okay, so this is the beginning of the end. Yeah. And so the, and we take off and then we, and we, we're, we sing the national anthem at a Sonics game. We ride a bull. We help kids that are, uh, have cancer go on sh- a shopping spree. We help this guy named Mark who had cancer, who didn't have, who was living in a, sleeping on a blow up mattress in his apartment. We went to a local church, the church, uh, congregation, all, all the people from the church just brought like lamps and, and beds and all this stuff. And then we furnished his room and we have this, you know, and I knew again, now more press and everything's building and more and more. We get back home, we're fired up. You know, it's been like, now it's global news. And uh, we're like, okay, let's, let's, let's make this doc. Now we realize, hey, post-production is expensive. Yep. We spent mm. all of our money. Mm. We have no money left. And now it's just like nosedive. I go back, I go, I can't say I go back to working in a bar. I've never worked in a bar. I have to pretend I'm a, I know how to bartend to work in a bar. I start working in this crappy bar. I'm like, okay, we just 
turn down the, the opportunity of our lifetime, yeah. a TV show. Yeah, yeah. We spent all of our money on this film. We didn't pay ourselves a dime and we're never going to make this film. Like no one's given us any more money. We, no one is ever going to see this. Like mm -hmm. all this whole thing, we, we, we can't even explain to our friends what we just did, you know? And now it, it, it it's not going to happen. And as I started getting depressed again, you know, and I go to Mexico with my parents because they are in the Baja. Their friends have a place. So Christmas break, go down to Mexico. They're, they meet this, this, this couple. They have a daughter. She's older than me. I'm chatting. She's like, what do you do? I'm like, fuck, I don't know. Like, I'm, I, I'm trying to bartend. I keep getting fired because I don't know how to bartend. Like, <laughs> yeah. Someone asked me how to make a martini. I was like, how do you make that? <laughs> like, I went on a couple road trips once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I was like, yeah, I went, I went on this road trip doing this thing. I showed her the, the, the trailer that yeah. Johnny had made. Mm -hmm. and she's like, wow, this is really good. Like, if you're thinking about doing a TV show in Canada, like, you should think about doing it in the U.S. I'm like, yeah. She's like, I know a couple people, you know, classic LA, like sure. know someone in a production company, know someone in the air. Cut to, she ends up flying me down on a buddy pass to meet some of her friends. So it was a free ticket. I didn't yeah. have enough money to make a flight. Start meeting people. I come back. I'm like, guys, like a lot of people are excited about this idea. Little did I know that like in LA, that happens all the time. Right. Yeah. But, that's just how people <laughs> communicate in yes, LA. Yeah. yeah. You never hear from <laughs> them again. LA's really on to us, guys. <laughs> yeah. And so we, I, but I start doing trips down to LA by myself and I push off school. I mean, I made it into business school. Finally, I was like, okay, I gotta get my shit together. Like, yeah, yeah. I'm going back to business school. Right. I didn't even, I, uh, but I put it off, start doing trips. I learned, okay, you need, a, you need an agent. Start meeting with agents. You need a production company. I'm like, Johnny, we need, a, we need to make a pilot. So this is like the pilot that we make in 2007, right after Burning Man, we go to um, Vegas because we want to crash the MTV VMAs. This is 2007. Britney Spears is coming back. And you don't have a relationship with MTV this America. Is, You're just like, we're going to crash the VMAs. We're going to crash the VMAs. We're going to drive our bus and we're just going to bum rush the VMAs. And so we go down. The VMAs at this time, I just, I'm, I'm just... I'm cautious that people don't know what yeah. the VMAs are because at this mm -hmm. time, the VMAs were the big, that was the Oscars for young people, right? Mm -hmm. Like Video Music Awards is what it stands for. And Samir and I were graduating from high school at the time, 2007, you said? Yeah. Yeah, right? we were graduating I from high school. I did not miss a Video Music Award. No, like, we did not, not miss the VMAs. It, going was, to the VMAs was the biggest deal. Yeah. This is where pop culture was made. It was this generation's version of just... If you got to live, no. If you got to live inside the TikTok for you page or something sure, like that, yeah, I don't right. know. That's like going there for a night. Yeah, like you, every <laughs> year something would happen that if you didn't see, like yeah. that was going to be people were talking it was about. Crazy. Yeah. And by the way, so this is Britney Spears coming back. Yeah, I remember that. And this is Vegas, so there's, <sighs> and so we go. We don't have enough money to stay in a hotel, so we're we're living in our purple bus at the Circus Circus trailer park. So there's a trailer park area. Yeah, there's yeah. a place to, <laughs> to park your RVs at Circus Circus. So a we're lot of darkness. Yes, in that and lot, we're coming out of the yeah. playa in Burning Man. We're covered in dust. We're showering from a hose outside of our RV. Being like, how are we going to do this? There's a lot of police over at the Palms. Where the, mm -hmm. But we go scope it out. We notice that like, as we get to the day of the awards, there's this line of black cars going in the back and everyone's giving a pink card to security. And we're like, okay, that's the VIP entrance. That's where we should go in. So our plan is 
we're going to go because we, the only thing we have in our favor is we have a film crew. So we look like we're doing something important. So we're like, let's pretend we're filming a pilot for MTV. And we will craft an email from the head of MTV, which is Judy McGrath, who has been at MTV for years. So we, I don't know if I should talk about this, but no, they know that we did this. We made her a Gmail or like an email address for her, sent our, us an email from Judy McGrath saying, boys can't wait to see you in the awards. Remember, no one knows about this pilot. Your tickets are inside. Okay. We go to a Savers thrift store. We get matching suits, women's power suits. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Blue, green, fucking red, pinstripe. Don't even do up. And we're like, okay, let's bum rush these back entrance. We'll say that we've lost our card, but our director will act as our publicist. We'll make a bunch of like a shitstorm of activity. Be like, mm-hmm. we're late for the cardboard. Like we got to get in and we'll just try and cause confusion and get in the awards. Right. So we clean our bus with our hose. We get in our suits. We go to the back entrance and we creep up to the front. We're like buried life guys were late. We got to go in. He's like, uh, what light? Like, what are you talking about? You're not on. Let me radio in. We're like, we just start yelling. Yeah. We're trying to act like assholes and trying to, <laughs> he's like, we show the email. We're like, you're going to lose your job if we don't get in there. We're just trying to do anything. All of a sudden he's like, ah, like guys, no, like just get out of the way. Just go over there for a second. Like there's a whole bunch of people trying to get in. He's like, his mistake was he said, just go that way. So we just keep driving into the throngs of people. We're honking the horn. Now it's like, we're outside the entrance. People are like, what's, who's this? Honk, honk, open the door. We're like, first camera go out. Second camera go guy. Audio go out. We go out and we just rush. We put our like jackets over our faces and we're like, we're late for the carpet. We're late for the carpet. Red robes just start to open, start wow. to open. I think people thought we were the plain white tees. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, sure. And, uh, yeah. And, we and they did. were hot at that time. Hey, they're Delilah had just come yeah. out. Thank yeah, yeah. they yes. were hot at that time. Yeah. What was their song? Hey, hey they're Delilah. Delilah. Hey, they're Delilah. Delilah. Yeah, great yeah. track. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so anyways, yeah. <laughs> we're just bulldozing through, mm-hmm. right onto the red carpet. All of a sudden we're like, holy shit, we're on the red carpet. I get into the press room with a camera. And I'm interviewing celebs. Perez Hilton, who was like the yeah, oh king yeah, queen yeah, yeah. at the time, comes up to me. He's like, he's like, where'd you get that suit? <laughs> I'm like, it's vintage. <laughs> I didn't tell show him that yeah. I didn't have the button done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Johnny gets in the awards with a camera, dude, like a wow. full over the shoulder camera. Wow. And he's like eating the shrimp cocktail, cruising sure. around. We get out of the awards. No one knows that we're in there. Wow. And cut to back to, I'm going to do, we're like, Johnny, we need a, we need a pilot. Like, let's make the pilot about the secret pilot. Yeah. Mm. So Johnny cuts that together. We also do a story of helping someone else. We, we got, uh, we, we street performed to make money so we could buy a bunch of computers for a classroom in, uh, in Watts and, and gave it to them so they could, yeah, this is like 2000, 2006. So Johnny cuts the pilot and I start going around and show people it. And everyone's like, fuck, this is really good. And we, we're trying to get to a production company that we love. We can't, our agents can't even get us a meeting. We found our own meeting to them. We partner with them. And then we start pitching networks. And ABC and MTV both wanted to do the show. Wow. And 
And the reason why we went to MTV, because the head of MTV at the time, a guy named Tony DeSanto, who started MTV as an intern 18 years ago, is legendary there. He was like, guys, the only way we can fuck this up is by stopping what you're already doing. He gave us executive producer credits. He gave us creative control. We maintained ownership of the IP. And we drove our purple nudist bus down to LA in 2009. And we just went just hot into executive producing our first television show, which is like a complete, total different world from what we're used to. Yeah. I mean, think of, yeah. I mean, you're a YouTuber, you're making videos with your friends. All of a sudden you're now making it with 60 people. Yeah. On the road. And there's lawyers involved. And you can't go anywhere without sign off and you can't do, and all of a sudden releases and Jesus Christ, this is How, how many people are you actually traveling with? At least 30, at least 30. At and least this, 30? And, 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 then, and we, we are just, we're, we're going rogue. Like we, we just sure, have to yeah. be like, we're out of here. Yeah. Yeah, we're yeah, going yeah. with three people, like totally. one camera guy, one audio, one producer so that we can actually get, get releases. There's also like the safety of being a creative, meaning like, where do, how do you feel safe as being like the loosest version of yourself? Yeah. You know, it's not with 30 people watching you. Exactly. It's not at all. Like if you, you need to like, that is a different type of discomfort than the discomfort you're building into the show of getting, like doing something totally mm-hmm. new and crossing something off your list. But then having all these people just standing there with like walkies watching you, you're like this, I don't feel yeah. safe. Or then be like, oh, one sec, stop for one sec. Colin, could you say that? Uh, but reference it like it's two days ago. Cause we're going to need to fit that into the, <laughs> yeah. you know, and you're like, what the yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and so like the best part about this show is that it's real. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that's what we were trying to, and they're yeah. like, well, if we're, so we do things, you know, we're, we're, we want to like break into places, yeah. streak a field, you know, do all these things that if they know we're doing it, it defeats the whole purpose. Right. And so we have to fight to make this real. This show hasn't been made. Shows aren't really made like this is, like, I mean, that stuff's now, reality. Yeah, that, that stuff's now made on YouTube. I mean, meaning like, it's so funny to hear you talking about sneaking in to the VMAs, right? Because that is still a format on mm-hmm. YouTube today. I just watched a video uh, mm-hmm. last week of this guy, Zach um, Aslop. How do you say his last name? Formerly Zach and Jay. Zach and Jay, yeah. yeah. In, in London, sneaking into Glastonbury. Mm-hmm. That was the whole premise of the video, right? Mm-hmm. It's like sneaking into the biggest music festival in London. And like, that is still a format that happens regularly on YouTube today. Mm-hmm. Um, and that generates a lot of attention and viewership and it's still interesting to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's so interesting that a lot of these things you were doing back then are absolutely the formats that today in 2022 and probably next year will still carry on, right? Like these streaking a field that happens on YouTube now, mm-hmm. right? That's mm-hmm. like, these are things that are happening. Um, yeah. Today. And if the camera isn't shaky and maybe far from the subject, you won't believe it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so we started right, filming yeah. the show on flip cams. Remember flip cams? Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. of course. Yeah. So you could buy those at like a CVS, yeah. the Kodak um, flip. Yeah. I had one of those. So it was yeah, awesome. There was also, and then there was the f- actual flip cam was the brand and it looked like a, Oh yes. It had a little camera on it, but you could kind of play it off like a cell phone. So yep. we would mm-hmm. film pretending yep, yep, we were yep, on yep. our phone. But the other thing was, was, was tricky was that this, you know, we knew that the most, there was, there was two purposes of the show. One, to, sh- to show that these things were possible and how much fun they were to actually to do and to, to, to live this way. 
but also how meaningful it was to help someone else do something Mm -hmm. that they wanted to do. And this was a very delicate, a fine line to walk when it came to producing and, and, and actually the final product, because we had to lead with the fun, the cool, the crazy, you know, ask out the girl, your dreams, try to ask out Megan Fox or Taylor Swift, survive on deserted, deserted Island, you know, all these things that would get people interested in watching. But the real meat of the show was then when we met someone and helped them accomplish their thing. And being able to one produce that and create those stories in, in, in a real way. And that was when we really had to figure out, okay, how are we shooting this long lens? How are we miking ourselves? Like, how are we just, this is, we have one shot at this, you know, we're reuniting a father and son after 17 years. There's one moment that we have to capture, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, we're helping a girl find her mom's grave that she had, her mom died. She didn't know where she was buried. You know, these like these stories that were very real. And how do we pair that with streaking a field, you know? (laughs) And so this, but we knew that that was actually the, because through our experience in, 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 in living this, when we had experienced those stories, we immediately got uh, something back from it. Like it was, it wasn't like, you know, give and like, it'll come back to you. Mm. Cause I think when you give without expectation, there's an instantaneous, you get it right back. And so it's like when you give a gift to someone that you're so excited for them yeah. to receive it, Yeah, you're not giving the gift to get a good gift on your birthday. You know, it's like you're giving them a gift because you receive just as they receive. Mm. And so that was something that we, you know, that like real raw, uh, those real raw moments, um, was we had to fight with uh, the network a lot to it's so interesting right to to, to like how, how much of that was a project because they wanted to market it of course right? and what yeah. was marketable was not those emotional stories and it just wasn't the, stuff like that the, really there wasn't that, that stuff wasn't on MTV yeah you know it the, just wasn't really the concept of giving a gift is something that came up this week actually from Thomas Bragg from Yes Theory we. You know, just to actually swing back a little bit to the accountability, um, mm-hmm. we are now part of a group of creators that meets once a week. It's moderated mm-hmm. by someone, um, wow. and it's serious. Like you, you have to. They send a prompt. You have to respond to the prompt before and and fill it out before the meeting. You have to come prepared. You have goals that you have to say out loud. That then they the moderator then the week after says did you do that goal? Like this is the specific thing you said you were going to do last week. Did you right. do it? And if and you're the, a no show multiple times in a row, you get kicked out. You get out kicked out. You also, if you don't tell people I'm not yeah. going to be there and you just yeah. don't show up a couple times in you, a row, it's like you're out. You also pay to be a part of this group, right? right? It's, it's incredible. But we started talking about um, crossing a million subscribers, which is something that at, the, at this moment we're, we're getting, we're closing in on and having ideas around it. And a lot of our ideas, when we said them out loud, Thomas actually said back to us like, you know, you're asking a lot from the audience. Like this process of being a creative is like giving, Mm -hmm. like what's the gift, Mm -hmm. right? And recognizing, I think that in in the world of like gamification or commercialization of creativity, a lot of times the framework starts to shift, especially in a network like that of like, how do we, how do we make this thing make money? It's what it has to do, right? How do we make this thing work? 
mm-hmm. um, rather than just sitting in the place of like, what's the best gift we could deliver to people mm-hmm. creatively? Exactly. You and, know? And, and I think the thing that I've realized is the really what this whole journey has been for me is self-discovery. Yes. Like what, who am I? Mm. And what is that truest version of myself? And anytime I get away from that truest version of myself, I literally start to get depressed, Mm. you know, and I'm not saying that that's what everyone's experience is, but this is my experience. And it's not as simple as just that. And then I can fix that. And that makes me feel better. There are many things, as I said, therapy, you know, I have like this toolkit of stuff that I think helped me get out of stress or troubled water, but there definitely is a consistent um, feeling that when I start to feel low, something in my life is not in alignment. It's either what I'm doing as my work, it's a relationship, perhaps it's like just something that I'm focusing on that is not. And, and when I change that and come back to who I truly am, then life starts to click and I start to feel energy. And I think that as a creator, I mean, for me personally, once I'm really honest with myself about who I am and I can express that in a real way, then I feel like it's creating the biggest impact. And I think you create your own best impact when you are true to yourself and that how you do it changes. Like you can recycle the way that you are projecting what that expression is. Like for me, it went from documentary to television to books and now it's live events. Like, I mean, speaking basically. And I get, I have to get re-inspired by the, this, the medium and also the way that I'm expressing it. And so it's just really hard to do though, because as you said, like you have to make money, mm-hmm. right? You're looking at what's working. You, it becomes a commodity. It becomes a business. And sometimes you have to do certain things just to run the business and make sure. it successful. But if that's the case, you need to carve out time and protect time for those things that make you feel truly alive. And that's yeah. what your list is. It's identifying those things that make you feel like your true self because the problem is, and this is the biggest problem, is that most people die regretting not being themselves. So this is the biggest problem on earth. And it's not just a problem now. This has been a problem for hundreds of years. That's why the poem was written over 150 years ago. It talked about this exact same thing. And it's getting worse. And it will continue to get worse as we get buried by social media, as we get disconnected from people in having less and less interaction. So you need to stop and take time to make sure that you are on your true course. And the Buried Life had this amazing poem. I sorry, this amazing, uh, it's like eight lines and it's in the bucket list journal, but it's effectively talking about tracking your true original course. And I think as creators, that's what we're trying to do is we're just, we're just, we're just trying to figure out who we are. And when you have the audacity to be that person and to follow that path and not care what other people think and just go for it, that is what people want to see. And that is timeless. You know, yeah. people are drawn to that courage. People are drawn to, you are the only person on earth who is you. So you, like, that's a competitive advantage. Just don't be other people, be who you are. And the trouble is sometimes it's hard to figure out what that is. That what I found is helpful 
is like breaking down those little, it's like, it's not your purpose. These are like mini purposes. That's what your list is. So you write down those things that are going to give you that, that excitement, that sense of joy. And it's not just the creative pursuits. We're talking like, what are your goals, your physical health goals, your mental health goals, your uh, relationship goals, your intellectual goals, what you want to learn, professional, financial, all these things. So you know, this is my roadmap. These are the things mm-hmm. that I, this is who I am. That's what yeah. your list is. It's, it's like you turning yourself inside out and putting it on a piece of paper. And now you've identified what those are. And the next step, as you said, is just build accountability. Yeah, I think that we can save years of our life by taking minutes or hours of our day to write, just write down things. Like Colin and I, when we first started finding success, one question I asked Colin and that I was pondering myself is what's enough? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's enough for us? What's enough money? What's enough viewership? What's enough mm-hmm. content, right? Like what, 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 how do we come up with a system where we know we're doing enough because of, otherwise this whole world is infinite. The world of creativity, especially on the internet is completely infinite right now. We could be posting something, right? And that could actually generate viewership, new audience revenue at any given moment. Every creator right now has infinite possibility. And that is a really incredibly overwhelming thing. And then you, you take that and just think about your life. And it's like, in some respects, that's also the case. You just could be doing anything. So if you don't write frameworks down of like, well, what is the thing I'm trying to do? Then I think it can become debilitating to a point where actually we had an experience where we were really struggling. This is like the depths of creative output, no direction and no, Mm. no money. And we went to Whole Foods. As one does. As As one one does. does, During those moments. It's yeah. That's where you go. If you live in Los Angeles, uh, when you're down, it's actually Aaron. This is your low. But but it was for me, I was looking at a situation where I had recognized where we we had gotten to. Um, How long ago was this? This is, I think 2017. Yeah. This is 2018, probably closer to 2019, 2019 when we eventually sort of stopped. But basically we had gone so many different directions, uh, one after another, after another, in such a short amount of time mm-hmm. that it became very confusing if there was any direction that we should be going. Cause we felt like we had tried so many and they just weren't working layer on top of that as an editor, you know, people always say, don't, don't worry about what other people think. But as an editor, like that's actually your job yeah. is to sit there and do that. <laughs> and then when you're the subject of what's being edited and you're editing, I'm making a thousand decisions in an hour about myself showing up in this timeline. Mm-hmm. And I had a little bit of decision fatigue after months of making decisions that didn't feel like they were, they were panning out. And we went to Whole Foods for lunch and I'm sitting looking at the buffet bar and I'm just paralyzed. I, I, I it was so unexplainable. It was inexplicable to me yeah. why I couldn't just decide if I wanted broccoli and like chicken <laughs> yeah, yeah. or if I wanted soup or if I wanted to go over and get pizza. And I was just standing there just paralyzed. I thought I was about to cry. I just looked mm. at Samir and but I just said, I can't. I think at one point you sat on the floor. I sat on the he floor. He sat on the floor. Like yeah. A, I just yeah. And again, couldn't move. for me yeah. looking at that scenario and being like, oh man, we have no idea. And it reminded me of the beginning of this story of what you told us that you would like grab your stuff to go to practice and just stop. Mm-hmm. And I think we, we didn't say it to each other that we were mentally not well because of how we were like our, our, um, path to trying to figure out 
how this worked was just to work more, to create more, not to, we, we didn't write down a list ever of like, what are we trying to do? It was yeah. just try something again tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some value to that. But just coming back to this concept of writing, like what was the goal of that week or that day or, you know, and some of it, some of that goal could be spend time outside. We didn't do that. Mm-hmm. We were like, no, we need to sit at this computer longer because this is what's not working. Mm-hmm. And I think the conversation of enough didn't lead to, okay, let's come up with metrics that we need yeah. to hit. It wasn't like, I need this many subscribers, we sure. need this many views, or we need to make this much money. It really came down to more so uh, daily process and, and how we were enjoying our days. Were we feeling individually fulfilled? Right. Yeah. Um, is ultimately what it came down to. Which is a good thing too. And we've talked about this before. It's like, well, what is success? You know, mm-hmm. can you define what success is to you? And for me, what I've realized is success is sleeping through the night. Because when I sleep through the night, I'm not stressed about something. And I'm typically someone who has trouble sleeping because I'm worried about stuff. Yeah. And because what that means is when I'm sleeping through the night, then the next day I feel like myself. And then I can tackle anything. So that's one goal. The other is Am I doing, are, am I doing things daily that energize me, that, that, that make me feel alive? Because like, what, what, what else are we trying to do here? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like we're just trying to yeah. f- feel great and yeah. feel alive and feel, I mean, fulfilled, like makes you feel alive, you know, like mm-hmm. the creative expression makes you feel alive. Meaningful relationships make you feel alive. Being active makes you feel alive. So, so what are those things that make me feel alive? And a lot of times I don't have time for those things because I'm working on something that, you know, I, that, that may not f- funnel into those two mm. metrics. Now, can you define what those things are and then protect time for those things? And that's the trick as we get busier and busier, yeah. you know, and as you have a family and as you start to have more responsibilities, you also have this feeling that it's selfish to do things for yourself. Yeah. And I really believe that it's service. Like you have to take care of yourself in order to help other people. And, and that's, you know, when you're true to yourself and you're able to express who that is and you can, you can have that impact, but you can also be the friend that you need to be. You can be the father, the mother, you know, the person in the world that you need to be because you are being that full expression of, of, of your, and, and, capable of being that person. Mm. And it's just so easy to get swept up on the treadmill. Of course. Like, and so you literally need people to be like, yo, you're getting kicked out. Like we, Mm -hmm. like that group that you talked about, Mm -hmm. like you're out dude. Cause you are not doing what you say you're going to do. Like we need that for life. Like someone to be like, Hey, listen, like you're gone, bro. (laughs) (laughs) You're, you said that this is important to sleep and energize and you're not doing it like whack, like smack me on the back of the head. Like you need that accountability. And so that's why writing your list is important because you, that creates accountability. Cause all of a sudden these things that you think about that are important to you, now they're real. Now you have a reminder that they exist. That's why you talk about what the goals are because when you share your goals, you feel accountable mm-hmm. to people you share. You tell your whole audience, guys and girls, we're writing a book. That's our next right. thing. Yeah. We're writing a book. We're going to finish it this year. We're going to come back and, and release it next year. Well, you guys are fucking writing that book because you said you would. Yep. And everyone's going to be like, hey, guys, how's the book coming? Yeah. You're like, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now yeah. we got to write this book. That used to stress me out because we would like, we'd make... Uh, 
announcements all the time yeah. about things we were doing. And then people would be like, how's that going? You'd be like, uh, it's, it's not, not going. It's not going. Yeah. It hasn't, um, hasn't gone. It hasn't, it hasn't gone. gone. Yeah. It hasn't left the shipyard. I want to come back to your list. Um, cause we're at the point now you're, you know, you're making this TV show. Um, and again, like I'm, I'm always so fascinated by this cause it's like plant a tree is on this as at number seven and at number eight is play basketball with president Obama. <laughs> Some of the, one of the most possible things to do and one of the most impossible things to do. And I'm wondering if you could tell us the story of number eight, because as I'm looking at it, it's crossed off. Basketball with Obama. You sure you don't want the tree story? The tree story is much longer. The tree story is probably the tree story next next time. Yeah, yeah next time. Maybe too yeah. much for everyone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll get yes, you guys yeah. to do a documentary yeah. 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 on the, the tree, tree story. story. <laughs> I'll get Amar to do a long form. <laughs> um, so the short version of the Obama story, because I could tell that story in an hour and a half. Um, so Obama gets elected. Johnny calls me up, 2008, pre-MTV show. He's like, Benny we should put play basketball with Obama on the list. And I laughed. I was like, Johnny, I was like, that's hilarious. That's the most impossible thing we can think of. He's like, yep. But how amazing would it be? And I'm like, true. Wrote it down. Never thought we would uh, accomplish it. Come the television show. We're like, okay, we have to go after the biggest list items. And obviously there's nothing bigger than play ball with Obama. This is 2010. MTV's like, no way. Sorry, guys. Like, the chance of that actually happening is so slim. Like, we're just, we can't do it. And we're like, well, we're executive producers, so we're doing it. <laughs> so we drive to DC. We start asking people literally on the street if they know any politicians, people in the White House. Like, obviously, don't get Showing very far. Showing a photo of Obama. Do you know this guy? <laughs> yeah. Do you know like, this guy? The White House. He, he lives right here. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and we started to hear about these secret basketball games that happened. And, and then we uh, heard about like the, the personal aide of the president was a guy named Reggie Love and he played ball at Duke. And so he was actually the gatekeeper. He would send out texts to a select few senior officials the day of the game. And this is how these games happen. So you want to get on this text thread and everyone's trying to kind of jockey to get on the mm -hmm. thread. And so we're like, okay, we got to get a hold of Reggie Love. And we had already met with like anyone that we could meet with in, in Vegas. That's right, Vegas. In, DC. Yeah, that was our first the wrong Vegas, move. We yeah. went to Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, this feels right, but this is the wrong yeah. idea. We go to, and we meet with like just politicians and we're just like, hey, we're trying to prove that anything's possible. And, and mm -hmm. people are sending emails into the White House and, and we start to meet with their boss and their boss. And we get up to the Secretary of Transportation. Maybe we get a meeting because we drive a transit bus. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he calls the White House while we're in the room. And he's like, I want you to know, meeting with a buried life gentleman, like, uh, not sure how they got my office, but uh, I assure you, they'll cause no embarrassment to the president. And we get, right away get an email from the White House. And it, they're like, sorry, guys, not going to happen. And we're like, Fuck. so we keep getting these, like, yeah. we're, we're getting official no's, like, all the time. At this point, has an episode of the show come out on MTV at all? Or is this all still, like, where are we in the- No. No, this is season one. Season one. Yeah, no, no show. Yeah. Um, and so we- um, we, we, we actually found, this is kind of interesting. I don't think I've ever talked about this publicly. We get Reggie's, um, we, we get interviewed by an ESPN writer who had interviewed Reggie uh, after he became the personality of the president. And at the end of the interview, we're like, hey, do you think we could have Reggie's email? <laughs> and he's like, no. We're like, come on. He's like, oh, I don't know if this is still active, but like, okay, don't tell him when I gave you this. So we have this email. We don't even know if it's still active. So we start sending Reggie these emails. We're like, 
Reggie, you and the president versus us <laughs> tonight, 730 at the YMCA. Be there. Show up at the Y. You know, obviously no president, but we did it for a week straight. And we're showing up at the Y also at 5 a.m. because we heard Reggie works out there. Um, I see Tim Geithner, who's the secretary of treasury, go in. I'm like, oh my God, it's the secretary of treasury. I follow him into the bathroom or into the changing rooms and he's already in a suit and down into the pool area. I'm like, uh, so I just get a towel and take off my clothes and just have my boxers <laughs> under my towel. And I go out to the pool deck and I'm just sort of pretending to stretch. Yeah. And like, he comes up for air. I'm like, oh, Mr. Geithner, uh, sort of kneel down awkwardly as I like, he comes up, I'm like, Mr. Geithner, uh, we're trying to play basketball with the president. And he's like, what are you, what, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> it's like, ah, sure. Here's my assistant's email. I look up, I'm like, I see secret service in the window, yeah. just eyeing me. I'm like, okay, I better get out of here. Send an email to his assistant, no response. So just like, no, no, no. Uh, we're sending the emails. We're picking outside the, we have like signs outside of the white house wearing basketball uniforms from the seventies. No one's meeting with us. We leave DC. We're done. We've tried. We're like, fuck. Okay. We go to New York to try and uh, tell a joke on late night was the next list item. We go to camp outside Letterman. I get a block call coming in my phone. And all I hear is, what's this I hear about you wanting to play basketball against the president and I? And it's Reggie Love calling me. Wow. I mean, I remember clear as day. I'm on the streets in New York. I step into like a Tiffany's to take the call. I'm like, oh, yes, sir. And I explained to him why. And he's like, you know what? I like this. I really like this. I think I, make it, I can make it happen. Give me two weeks. I got to run it by the press team, right? Press team, they got to sign off on yeah, everything. Mm-hmm. But, you know, give, give it two weeks or so. I'll call back. Uh, I feel good about this. Calls me back two weeks later. He's like, gentlemen, talk with the press team. It's not going to happen. Mm. <laughs> no, another, no, and we're like, and he was like, he literally wanted it to happen. And he's like, fuck, sorry, boys. Like, uh, if you're ever back in DC, let me know. Maybe I can give you like a personal tour of the White House. Three months later, we're back in DC. Um, Reggie Love gives us a tour. And we're like in the West Wing and we're walking around next to the Oval Office and down to the basketball courts and just pristine basketball courts, like manicured hedges, presidential seal on each hoop. And there's a presidential basketball with the Obama logo. And we're shooting around. And uh, Obama was out of town because he had to some trip overseas. So we were just like not thinking anything. And then I hear Johnny go, oh my God, oh my God, it's the president. And we whip around and President Obama strolls on the court. He's like, hey, boys, heard you're in town. Thought the least I could do is shoot a basket with you. <laughs> and we're like, what the? <laughs> and then we were just shooting hoops with Obama for 15 minutes. And the White House photographer was there. And we're all of a sudden, you immediately forget he's the president because he's the coolest man on earth. He's so disarming. And so we're just shooting shots, trash talking each other and just shooting around for 15, 20 minutes. He just rolled down from the office, like in his collared shirt. And we just shot around with him for 15, 20 minutes, talked with him. And all of a sudden we were just like, what just happened? Like, I remember writing that down. That was impossible. Yeah. It just happened. And there was proof that impossible was possible because I'd just seen it with my own eyes. Like, so from that moment on, I had no choice but to believe that anyone can do anything. Cause I was like, well, how could I think that something's impossible if I proved to myself yeah. that it was? And I think everyone has the ability to prove to themselves that those things are possible. You know, after a few of those bigger dominoes fall, like if you guys think about like, you know, these big milestones that you hit after a while, you're like, whoa, I guess there's no limit, you know, like mm. we're the limiting factor. Mm. And I've, I, I think each and every 
creator, each and every person has the ability because that's what you're trying to do is you're not trying to prove other people. You're trying to prove to yourself because yeah. once you prove to yourself, then it's like your decision-making changes. You don't go and, 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 and face a challenge thinking, can I do this? You think, do I want to do this? Does this align with who I am? I know it's going to take a lot of work. Am I prepared to do the work? And does it align with what I want to do? And so that moment changed my core belief system. And, uh, I think it changes my core belief system too. <laughs> I, I remember watching you perf- like speak at, at Yes Live and tell this story with visuals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, it hits so hard. And the crowd the, erupts. The like cra- can- yeah, yeah. I, I, was tr- I was waiting for the moment where we were going to erupt, right. but it just <laughs> yeah. wasn't the right context here on the podcast. Uh, you but, did erupt. I think the mics were off. Yeah, the mic- <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, but it is an insane story. And it really is one of those stories of persistence, of um, manifestation yeah. of like what you mentioned of that, that limitations are these, like they, they are uh, part of that journey of self-discovery. It is part mm-hmm. of learning like your own limitations of your mind and mm-hmm. this conversation you're having with your mind around what is possible and what isn't. And uh, it's such a great story. And I think even just, you know, looking at the list, I know there's so many other good stories here too, that, you know, that you can, you can just set your mind, set an intention and work towards that no matter if it's plant a tree yeah, or play ball with President Obama. Yeah. And I think the persistence is just, it, it's often overlooked. Like yeah. We see people that are successful. And if you look at like the creator that you look up to the most and you watch them do their thing and you're like, whoa, they're good. Like, mm-hmm. And what you're saying is like, they're better than me. They're smarter than me. They're more talented, you know, but you don't remember, you don't realize that they were where you are right now. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. 99% of the time. Sure. Some people are given a platform and they can run with it, but yeah. they get lucky. But for the most part, it's brick by brick. Yes. And they are building that career. And a lot of times you don't even know what's possible until you're doing it. And I think that's why a lot of people give up is because you can almost not imagine yourself doing that. Like I, I couldn't imagine us playing ball with Obama. Like I, we were just like, we were just doing it because like, it was so exhilarating just to like go and try. Mm -hmm. And I didn't believe it until it actually was, was in front of me. And then I had no choice. And so most people give up. They just do. It's just too much work. It just, it's too, you, you have to continually just be adamant and, and persistent. And a lot of times we get stuck in the planning, right? Like we over plan and then we forget that action is the plan. Mm. And when I get stuck, I sometimes think I just need to act. It's not going to work. I'm going to learn. I don't look at this as a failure. I look at it as an experiment. Like this is something I'm going to try. And if it checks two boxes, if it works and people like it, and if I like it, because I might try it and I might not like it. And I've done that before. We started a production company after we did the TV show. We started making television shows. It was successful. We sold some shows, but I was unhappy. And I realized I, yeah. I wasn't, you know, being true what I, to what I really wanted. So, all right, I need to pivot. And that's when I started speaking. But it was a very difficult thing because we were getting investment. And it was like, I built this thing with my friends and I was like walking away. But I mean, you guys can speak to 
persistence because you were so close to stopping. Mm -hmm. Like you guys were stopping. Like imagine how different your life would be if you decided to really throw in the towel maybe two weeks earlier, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know. Or a year earlier. A year earlier, you know. When Colin was on the floor of the Whole Foods. Exactly. That was the time. Yeah. If there was a time. I can't believe there were so many moments that it would have been way easier to walk away then. Yeah. Than when we did. Yeah. You know. I I can't. I, I actually the other night had to go back and just watch our channel. Like go back and watch from different years. Because I was like, how did we have the wherewithal and just to just keep doing this. And, and, and like, I remember some of these memories and I'm like, Oh, we were having fun too. Mm -hmm. And it was so hard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm curious about to go back to just zoom in on that season one of the buried life. Was it a success? Like, was the show a success? Mm. And did it feel like a true representation of the experience? Because it's one thing to live it. It's another to try and capture it and present it. <laughs> we almost killed ourselves over making that show um, something we're proud of. Yeah. yeah. Like, we, we, dude, we, we would... The, 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 the episodes were getting locked while we were on the road. So, like, this was our first experience of, like, the production cycle. So we're on the road filming... And they're sending the footage back from episode one and we're filming episode four by the time episode, you know, one is in like fine cut, then lock cut. And we're sending notes on the road, but we're like, guys, this is terrible. Like when we don't have the time because we're fucking filming, we're trying to like, you know, survive on a desert island, (laughs) send notes like, and, 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 but MTV was happy with it. And the production company just wanted to wrap it because it, sooner they wrapped, the more money they made. And we, we started to be like, oh, the production company is making money by getting the printing these quickly, right? Like Mm. the the longer we shoot, the less money they make and they're making money in the margin. They're getting 300 K an episode. It's costing them 200 K, but if it costs them 150, but if it costs them over 300 there, you know, so Mm -hmm. that's the game. And we're always pushing for more time, which is more money. So we're always, so these episodes are getting locked. We're coming, we come back from our tour we're exhausted. And we're like, guys, these f- episodes suck. Like this feels like a reality show. Like the music's terrible. And they're mm-hmm. like, well, guys, MTV's happy with them. They're like, actually literally happy with them. And they're like, well, we want to re-edit them. We're like, well, we're not going to re-edit them. Like one thing, they're happy with them. Two, like cows for money. Three, like what, we're going to send them another one? Like they're already. Yeah. And we paid editors out of our own pocket to re-edit the wow. episode, sent them directly to the president of MTV, Tony Santo. And Tony was like, yep. These are great. You guys have the creative autonomy. Wow. What so we, a guy. We broke, dude, yeah, unbelievable. We broke open all the, the episodes again. We re-edited them. We would call artists to get music, you know. Dude, we had Coldplay in our intro, you know, like uh, for the yeah. premiere. Like yeah. that costs like hundred grand or something. Like we, we went through, it was really cool because MTV used to have this prolific music library. And at that point, they had whittled it down, whittled it down, but there still was this music that was free that they like had licensed to from like nineties hip hop, like really cool. Mm-hmm. So we like comb through all that. And yeah, I mean, we used like justice when justice was coming, like busy P wow, justice was hot. Yeah. We had yeah. like uh, Chromio. Mm-hmm. We had, uh, unfortunately now you watch it and it's, 
you we only had that for the air in the US. Like so when you watch it on iTunes oh, or Amazon. Okay, got it, got it. Or, I think it's on Paramount Plus now, if you got Paramount Plus. <laughs> <laughs> um so it's the international music, but we we had bangers in the Yeah, that's cool. And, and we were so like it was so interesting because our show came out the same year the Jersey Shore came out. So we went to New York um for the premiere. It was really funny actually, because they were like, guys, come to come to New York for uh the uh, ball drop. And we're like, great. We're going to like first time. To, yeah. We'd been to New York to pitch, but it was like first time for the, you know, New Year's. We go, we're in Sun Valley skiing and we go to this thrift shop, shop called, I forget what it's called. And we all get like 80s ski gear and we're going to New York and we go to Times Square where the Viacom building is and we're dressing our crazy gear and we get there and we're like, they're like, we thought they were, we were going to meet all the executives. Well, turns out, we were doing the live ball drop on live television. They're like, all right, guys, the plan is we're going to walk you out. There's thousands of people. This is also like the era where Times Square ball drop. Yeah, like, yeah. So there's all, every network has a stage in the middle of Times Square. And there's just you have people as far as you can see just surrounding all the stages. They're like, all right, guys, you're doing the, we're gonna, you're going to do the live countdown. We're like, what? We're doing the, like on live? Like, they're like, Yes. And we're like, okay. All of a sudden they're getting whisked through all of the people. I got to show you this clip, man. It's so funny. So we- You're we, in those ski suits. You're in the ski yeah. suits, yeah. yeah. And we do the live countdown. Uh, and the show hasn't come out yet. So everyone's like, who are these? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but anyways, the, the point of the story is that Jersey Shore, all the cast of Jersey Shore was there. They, their episode, for episode one is premiering that night. And they're watching it on TV and they're all glued to the TV. And our sh uh, show came out it was before or after. I mean, I'm not quite sure, but it was, I think that was that night too. And they're watching it and they're, they're like, oh my God. And they're laughing and they're like, and we're like, guys, have you, you got, it looks like you guys like haven't seen this before. And like, no, we haven't, this is the first time we're watching it. We're like, what? We're like, we didn't even watch our episode because we're so sick of it because we've yeah, watched it yeah, a thousand yeah. times. We would watch, when our episodes airs, we watch Twitter to see people's reaction. And we started to realize like how rare this was that like we had made this like yeah. our way and we actually mm -hmm. had our hands on it. And I think that ultimately that's what, like if you say like, what was a success? It was a success, success for us because we were proud of it. Yeah, You know, I mean, this came out and Jersey Shore came out and it was the biggest rated show of MTV history was Jersey Shore. Yeah. So Jersey Shore is getting 8 million viewers and an episode. Jesus. I'm real. And we're, we're getting a million, which like, if you go back a couple of years, a million viewers is a, is, is a, is big, a big success. Deal. Yeah. So we're now struggling with like, Oh fuck. Like we're not, we got to get more viewers, but like people were like the people that saw it, they got it. And I still, to this day, like all, all the time have people come up and be like, Hey, I saw your show. And like, I decided to go travel Australia. I met my husband and now I live in Australia with my mm -hmm. kids and like we travel or like, you know, I was going down this path and I, and I changed and now they're like professionals, you know? Sure. And so, and or, a lot of people that I'm speaking to that are at like yeah. fortune 500 companies saw the show when they were in high school and it just was that I don't think that type of show had been on air before. It definitely no. was no show that had was named after a poem written in the 1800s. Sure. Yeah. It's cool to think a, 
about the impact that that show had on specifically the guys from Yes Theory. Yeah. Where it was at a time when they could see that on television mm-hmm. and the YouTube had changed so much. The landscape of YouTube had changed so that guys like them could see that show and say to themselves, we don't want a TV show. Mm-hmm. We just want to do what they did, something similar. Mm-hmm. And they had access to mm-hmm. just immediately upload it to YouTube. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, like by the time they were watching, the barriers had kind of been ripped off. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, their first you know, go at it was Project 30, which was making a list of things to do in 30 days that they'd never done. Right? Mm-hmm. It's incredibly uh, inspired by it. And uh, even when you look again ahead at, at, as they started taking more to YouTube, sneaking into movie premieres was a big part of it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, mm-hmm. it's such an interesting um, thing to watch the, the way that you guys, you know, impacted people's lives, impacted creators. And then now those creators are impacting creators. I mean, I'd say the S theory guys have impacted us a lot, you know, and like how this, uh, as you call it, the ripple effect is taking place. And, and there's probably tons of people that you don't even know who are doing something based on something they saw on that show. Like how powerful media is mm-hmm. and filmmaking is why I even entertain the concept of, of doing this. Cause I was, I was in college and I, I was taking economic, I was an economics major and a film minor. And I watched a movie in one of our film classes, uh, a French movie called 400 blows. And at the mm-hmm. end of the film, I started crying and then I went to my economics class and I was learning about money and I was like, and you started crying <laughs> yeah, yeah. sobbing. And, and I was like, wait, someone made this up, you know, like economics is yes, it exists, but it, yeah. it's made up. Like someone came up with this game that we play mm-hmm. and in film, I can't explain to anyone why I just cried. It's just a human experience that you told me a story and I cried. And I called my mom right after and I told her I was, I, I was a very, you know, young angsty kid, mm-hmm. but I was like, mom, I'm dropping my economics major. I'm going all in on film because it's real. Mm-hmm. The other thing isn't real. It's made up. This is real. And she couldn't understand what I was talking about, but she you're was drunk, son. Yeah. 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 She like, was like, you're, you probably just did some acid or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, I think that's something that has always attracted me to these stories. Right. And being able to tell stories for a living is because you know there's someone on the other side who, similar to, to myself, who I hear stories every day that change the trajectory of how I'm you know, yeah. existing. And, and yeah, that's... And it's such a powerful, important idea that's so easily forgotten because we're so yeah. wrapped up in the analytics. And oh, so, yeah. But it's just, you just don't know who you are impacting. But because every action has a reaction. A smile creates a ripple, a compliment to a stranger. It doesn't need to be this huge magnum opus, right? Yeah. And whether you have a thousand followers or a hundred million followers, like you can save someone's life. You Mm. literally can change someone's life and not know it. Yeah. Just by doing what you love. And that's an incredible thing because it's a win-win. You get to do what you love. You get to inspire other people to do what they love. And if I think back, you know, this kid that I knew from high school, if he hadn't started that clothing line, we wouldn't have done Buried Life. Right. Yes, there wouldn't exist. Right. You know, sure. on, I mean, Sean Mendes was watched the Buried Life. There's like, we get like Jared Goff, all these people that come out of the woodwork being like, oh yeah, I saw the show. And it sort of made me think like, yeah, I can do it. I can do the thing. But, and now you hang out with Sean Mendes. 
That's correct. (laughs) (laughs) I I was wondering when we were going to get to that. (laughs) But the thing that's like so cool to think about is that if he hadn't, if my friend Aaron hadn't started this clothing Mm -hmm. line, none of this would have happened. Yeah. And the clothing line wasn't even a success. Yeah. Like it was just taking action. It it was a failure. It was a failure. It doesn't exist anymore. It didn't succeed. Yeah. And if, if you look at that, like how, everyone looks at those types of successes and failures, you would say like, well, it was a waste, but he created this ripple and that it's like, it just was like the first domino, small domino just to Mm. fall, but it hit ours. And then we kept doing it. And so, you know, everyone has the power to create that impact. And you may not know what the reaction is. You may not know how you actually impact the people, Mm. but it doesn't mean it's not real. So you have to remember that intangible, invisible ripple because that's the whole idea behind like kindness is contagious. It's like when you're kind, when you're positive, you enact more kindness and more positivity because of this this ripple. And so, you know, you think about that when you're you're making something, you know, you know, you got to like make money and you got to get people to see it but that's not the only marker of success. Like how can you remember that this is also why you're doing what you're doing? Because if you, if you have that as part of your why, you're just going to be more resilient. You're just going to be able to overcome the ups mm. and downs in the, and, and you may not, if you're just thinking I'm doing this cause it's my job. And that's the problem when you're a creator is that your passion becomes your job. And sometimes that fucking sucks. Yeah. Because you lose the joy because it becomes a business. And so you either need to figure out a way how to keep part of that true to the original reason why you started this or carve out time outside of that to now do more things that you love. It's really a crazy thing that happens um, for sure. I think I'm, I'm feeling it right now where the pressure of the business it almost makes you forget the other part, you mm-hmm. know, like, and the game of the business is also a fun game because it's has the most tangible metrics. Yeah. That game gives you the answer to what does validation mean? What does a reward mean? It's not intangible. It's tangible. It's numbers on a screen. Are those numbers going up or not? And you have certain inputs that make those numbers go up and certain inputs that make those numbers go down mm-hmm. and you just get to play a very simple minded game, Right. And I think as we're approaching this milestone, I've had to start to take a step back and be like, what does this milestone mean? What does it mean that mm-hmm. we're, we've achieved this success? Like, why does it matter? Um, yeah. You know, why, why does, and again, that's like deep into this self-discovery. Like why did, we were just talking about this the other day, like the amount that we had to sacrifice to do this is significant time with our friends, time relationships, right? Like we, we really have spent the past 12 years just together in a room making stuff, you know, like, and that's, and hard, like a, a hard things to do. And it was amazing looking back at some of our old videos and, you know, they may have 5,000 views, which was like at the time was exciting. And yeah, look back now and there's, 12 comments, yeah. which is a true indicator actually of like the impact that we were kind of having. <laughs> yeah. at and it's interesting that- And two of them that, are you yeah. and two of them are Samir and, and your no, mom like, jumped in there. So few people were speaking back to us, mm-hmm. you know, it was, um, but, but we just found yeah. enjoyment in it and just kept going. 
Yeah. And it's, I, I do, I do spend a lot of time trying to uncover why, because there's so many different paths in life. And when you come from a place of, you know, a certain situation where you do have options, you know, of what you can do in life, there's a lot of options. Mm-hmm. And this option was really hard and is really hard. And, um, there's, there was an option even when, you know, we sold a company and were employed by another company that, to be honest, we were extremely successful employees at this company that probably could have just stayed and had a very comfortable scenario. But you that know? was becoming hard because it felt uncomfortable. Right, and right, like right. We had to adjust and get out of that mm-hmm. scenario too. But that's it, what I'm saying is like, I, I have tried to uncover like, why was that? Why did I feel discomfort in that setting? Why mm-hmm. did I, why did we throw ourselves back into the wild of just like, uncertainty and creativity. Um, I felt like it was a capped potential. Sure. Like everything was too known when yeah, we had yeah, a salary yeah, yeah. and we yeah. had a job. I knew yeah. exactly what we were doing every day, what was going to happen. Yeah. And, you know, the second we stepped out of that, we always call YouTube a ticket to the extraordinary. But really what that means is that we put out a video and even though 5,000 people might see it and 12 people comment, one of the people could send us an email and invite us to go here or meet them. And that's the feeling that I think I wanted to have again of let's put things out and see what comes back to us. (laughs) Right. And see, like you think about the last six years of this channel for us has been just meeting different people. Mm -hmm. It's just been you included. Like everyone who sits in this chair that we speak with is just someone who most likely saw one of our videos and reached out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, It's exciting that we then get to spend time with them and learn. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, the, the, the reason why you felt the discomfort in that job that you were in is because you were starting to feel capped because you weren't being able to be your true expression. Yeah. That's and true. once you pivoted into an environment that encouraged you to be that true version of yourself, then you started to have more fun, started to yeah, yeah, yeah. thrive, started to make a bigger impact. And that's the feeling that I think people need to pay attention to. Cause it doesn't mean, by the way, that you need to go and do creative things and be a creator. Like there's a, a majority of people out there yeah. are feeling like their true self in that type of structure. Mm-hmm. And that's totally, yeah. That's and that's totally fine. fine. Yeah. In fact, it's great. Like yeah. that's where you should be. Like you need to be wherever you feel most alive and yeah. feel like you are being most true to yourself. The key is checking yourself to make sure that you're in the spot for the right reasons. Like you actually are. Cause a lot of times we're living this life that we think it, we're being true to ourselves, but it's actually what we've been conditioned to be. Yeah. Or, or we, we feel like it's successful because we've been told that we need to continue to go up the ladder. By the way, I'm not just saying like go up the corporate ladder, go up the creator ladder, yeah. like get more followers, you know, make more money, you know, and that's like the, mm-hmm. the metric of success. Sure get the blue check. And so is that what you truly want? Right. And if it is great, but also understand that it's trade-off. Like, you know, know where you're going, talk with people that are successful creators yeah. Yeah. and understand that it's amazing, but it's also really fucking hard. Yes. Because like you burn yourself out. Like it's very hard to not burn yourself out as a creator. Uh, because as you said, there's infinite possibility and that's also very angsty. You know, you yeah, start yeah, to yeah. feel like it's, this low level anxiety, like, well, because I can post 
I should be posting. Oh, yeah. look, they're and posting. We don't have MTV or a network who's like, we ordered 10 episodes of the Colin and Samir show. Right. It's just us saying we make the Colin and Samir mm-hmm. show. We are. We are the Colin, Colin and Samir show. Life is so when does it stop? Are there breaks? I actually do miss times when we were more of a production company than a YouTube channel because we would work project to project and there yeah. was a start and an end and you just do the best that you can yep. within those terms. The, I know the, you spent time as a yeah. production company yeah. after The Buried Life, but yeah. for you, that did start to feel uncomfortable, right? Like you, you weren't your true self. Yeah, and what I, what I really hated about it was that we had a lot of good ideas and 99% of our <laughs> ideas, no one ever heard about it. Yeah. And then we'd see them pop up as shows. That sure, this, yeah. You know, yeah, like, yeah. not that they were stealing them. Oh, no, yeah, but that happens. But they probably were. Yeah, yeah but, it, <laughs> but, no, it but it happens. We, we had some experience like that in Hollywood, right? And, like, I think it's, it's a really strange experience when you get into this world of, like, mainstream production and mainstream entertainment where first you recognize, like, all the best stuff doesn't get made or seen. Yeah. Period. And it's insane. And then, you know, be, and it's because what you recognize is the people who are financing or at the top – their job is to mitigate risk, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. that's it. Their job is to mitigate risk. So not, it's like, their job is to not get fired. So it's like, how so do it's, I, it's actually yeah. worse for them to create a, uh, a flop yeah. than it is for them to create a hit. Like, I mean, like, like yeah, the, yeah, there's yeah, more negative yeah. consequences than there is upside for a hit, for a hit. right? Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because they, what they, how they win is consistently sort of like, hitting their sure. shows and then hopefully one day they'll, they'll get a hit. But if they do, if they produce a dud, you know, then so you can't experiment. There's no. really little experimentation. Like I always say in, in this context, like there's a reason why there's so many Spider-Mans. Yeah. Like that's a low risk format. Let's yeah. make another Spider-Man. Let's make another exactly. you know, Batman movie. Let's they know those work. Um, so yeah, that, that's a really interesting thing that happens at the, at the highest level of, yeah. You and know, then so then you realize like, oh, like that's the beauty of creating when you have these, pl- any platform yeah. is that mm-hmm. you do your expression and that's what you don't have in, mm-hmm. in, in mainstream. And so, but I think too, it's just, you know, if, if you say like, what's the biggest problem now for creators? Yeah. What is it? I think it's, uh, it's that un, this like infinite world of, of creation and, yeah. um, the gamification of success okay. versus purpose. Right. So I think you, I think a lot of creators are entering into YouTube saying there's an equation that works. Mm-hmm. There's an algorithm that I'm playing into. And at some point you're like, am I essentially doing a math equation mm-hmm. with my creativity? Mm-hmm. Right. And that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of what happens. And then you, the, the purpose question comes into play. Why? Mm-hmm. Why am I doing this? Isn't this a creative outlet? And there's some creators who we've met who are very honest and they're like, I'm not a creative person. I'm, I'm here because I found something that from a business works. perspective works and I'd rather do something creative than something not creative, but I'm an entrepreneur. Yeah. And we've met people like that who are just honest about it. And it's completely fine. You know, yeah. they're like, I, it just so happens my product is media, but you know, I figured this out. Yeah. This, this I system can make out. media or I can yeah. make shoes. Yeah. Totally. And it's like, I make media, but I think the creatives who, who enter into the field, I think get very bogged down by looking around. Like our failures on YouTube are public. Our numbers are public, right? If we have an underperforming video, it's public. And oftentimes in the comments, it's talked about, hey, this video is not performing that well, huh? (laughs) I saw someone comment on our last video. They're like, this video is not performing well. They're going to change the thumbnail. I'm here before the thumbnail change. 
Uh-huh. And I was like, that's so interesting that you're aware that we're struggling to find viewership on this video, yeah. right? Like the awareness of the public on what's going on with your creativity. Like you knew a million people were watching Buried Life. Other people didn't know that, right? Yeah. You knew 8 million people were watching Jersey Shore. Other people didn't know that. Yeah. But every creator has that number just boom, right there. How many people are watching you? How many people are subscribed to you? How many yeah. people care about and you? And what we have to do is take a step back and look at our videos, no matter yeah. how they perform, and say, do we feel like this was valuable for the right. people we're trying to serve? Yeah. Right? And I feel yeah. like you know, the biggest problem is, I agree, like wall of purpose, running yeah. into that of like, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. Is it the numbers that matter? Is it the, you know, is it amalgamation of all these things that matter? But I think the question of what matters to me about yeah. this is that question that goes unanswered and creates burnout and creates confusion and creates um, very short careers in our space. We're, mm-hmm. we're entering into this world where no one knows what it means to have a 10 or 15 year YouTube career. Right. You hear no, what people is that, what does that quitting mean? all the time. Yeah. What does it mean to go for that long? Is it okay to reinvent? Is it okay for a channel to look completely different five years from now? Is it okay if on our channel, you know, five years ago it looked different. Right now we do this show and in three years, does it look completely different? Are we doing a completely different show? Like, is that okay? Yeah. Um, when do we stop this show? Are there breaks? Are there seasons? Like, it, because we, we call this the, um, the paradox of permission. Because we are in a permissionless creative environment, it's beautiful that we get to just put out whatever we want. And at the same time, because no one's giving us permission to put stuff out, there's also no one giving us permission to take a break right. or to change or to, you know? And so that I think is a very long-winded answer to what's wrong <laughs> in, in our world right now. So I went through an experience that uh, was, was meant a lot to me because it was a, a moment that I talked about before where I started to feel burnt out. And this was at the end of the run of our production company when we were quote unquote succeeding and we had just got an investment. And I realized this is not the end. This is the beginning. And I'd spent three years with the guys building this. And I realized, ah, this is not making me happy. And so I had to like talk with them and it was very hard to be like, guys, I don't think this is for me. Like, I'm really sorry. Like, I don't know what we're going to do. Which is Canadian for sorry. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Can we get subtitles? Yeah, Yeah, we can subtitles. (laughs) And so we, I ended up having a conversation with my uncle and my uncle was a producer for his whole career. He produced documentaries for the BBC and CBC in Canada. And I was like, uncle Bill, like, I don't know what to do. I feel like I'm letting everyone down. And I also feel like I'm going to have to start from the beginning. And he's like, you're not starting from the beginning. You're recycling your career. You're taking everything that you learn from being a producer and you're pivoting and rolling that into your next thing. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, huh, that's actually interesting. Like, yeah, I am kind of, rec- I'm not starting from the beginning. I'm just like continuing on my path and taking everything that I've learned from this experience and I'm going to apply it to my next thing. And I think it's natural to recycle your career. Like we don't recycle our careers enough because as humans, we're constantly changing. So our pursuits should also change, mm-hmm. but we feel like we've invested so much and we feel like there's a big risk if we change and whether that's changing your entire career or that's just changing your format of, or the way that you create. Sure. 
And as I said, like it's, I've gone through these shifts where it's like documentary, TV, books, speaking. Like, I don't know what the next thing is, but right now for me to be able to see people change in real time when I'm speaking and to talk with them after the keynotes and hear Mm -hmm. how that hour impacted their life. And then to feel that, you know, like the only way we could feel that with the show was through Twitter live, you know, Mm -hmm. YouTube, you get comments, you get people sending you messages, but you're not sitting beside them as they're watching the the show and or the the, the yeah. episode the the video and then being able to talk with them afterwards and hear how they're going to shift their life and so I've recycled my career to fuel me to be the best expression right and I think there's like always we we keep coming back to this and mm-hmm. I think as a as a creator if you can continually um, have part of what you do fill that that purpose and that why, then you're going to be better at everything else that you that you do, and and give yourself permission to just try and do something other things, you know. Yeah. Because is it like if you're not enjoying, if it's become a full blown business that you don't like, you know, it's just like a job that you don't like. like yeah, what, that's what, what, just, what, you mm-hmm. just built yourself a, a job that you want to leave, which yeah. is such mm-hmm. a strange thing to do. And the thing is, like, you yeah. come back to the top five regrets of the dying. Like basically I'm trying to re- reverse engineer my life yeah. to not have those the regrets. most yeah. common yeah. regrets. And one of the regrets is I wish I didn't work so hard. So <laughs> that's <laughs> something we should pay attention to because we work pretty hard, you know? So top five regrets, wish I wouldn't work so hard. Wish I would have had the courage to express my feelings. Wish I would have stayed in contact with friends. Uh, wish I would have let myself be happy and wish I would have lived for me, not for other people. And so if your list can touch on all those, then I feel like you're, you're winning. Because all we want is to not lay in our deathbed and think, oh, fuck, I, I blew it. Like I didn't do these things that I actually wanted to do. I didn't make the call. I didn't tell that person how I felt. I didn't, like, I worked too much. My whole life, like, my biggest fear is that I'm so busy that, like, life just is over. Like, I, I, like yeah. I'm not slowing down enough to actually be present. And that is pretty terrifying to think that, like, the days keep moving faster and faster yeah, and faster. I feel that right now. And they're sure. going to keep moving faster. Yeah. So how do you slow down? Well, you like, you're, you're, you have the awareness, like what's you build the awareness around these things that are, are meaningful to you, write them down, take action, tell people about them, build accountability and move through the fear. Like just stop worrying about what other people think. Just, just do it and know that they're going to respect you for being who you truly are. And whether that's pursuing that one thing that you love, or it's sharing the things that you're struggling with that's another huge thing is like we feel like we can't talk about these things because we're broken or like we we're ashamed but when you share your struggles you're opening the door for someone else to come to you so as a creator you're just opening this huge door for people to come back to you and share what they're going through give them permission (laughs) to be a human being because the reality is we're all human beings and we have ups and downs and that's the human experience Hmm? Also, it opens the door for other people to come give you a gift 
to yeah. help you out. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Because yeah. that, again, like you said, it's like you give the gift and you immediately get the value back. Exactly. You, and, and it's funny, you know, you think about when we face a problem in our life, like, like any work problem, like, what do you do? Like ask Samir or mm-hmm. like you go to a mentor, you ask the yes theory guys, you, yeah. you ask your audience, like you, you ask for help with our personal struggles. We, we go at it alone most of the time because we're too afraid to, but then that just means we have a lower chance of succeeding because we're just, it's just us trying to figure it out versus collaborating, yeah. getting help, you know? So when you talk about the things you're struggling with, you give someone else the opportunity to help you. Also, it's just scarier in your head. Like when you're thinking about these things, they feel much bigger. When you talk about them, you actually break them down and you sort of like ground them in reality and you realize, oh yeah, like that actually is a little bit unrealistic. Like this, I'm blowing this a little bit out of proportion. Here are like the facts of how I feel. Sure. And so you process them when you talk about them, yeah. which is important. For me, what I do is I just go to the bucketlistjournal.com and I just <laughs> <laughs> I see. That's actually the incorrect URL, but yeah. thank you. Okay, okay. It's what's actually, the URL? It's, it's writeyourlist.com. Writeyourlist.com? Yeah. Great URL. Yeah, thank and you. And I'm a URL guy. <laughs> I, 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 I thought yeah, that about yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. When I first met you, I thought, that's a URL guy. He owns a lot of URLs. I, I do own a lot of domains to the point where GoDaddy sometimes calls You're me. You're like just, a Delta Platinum yeah, member Just, of just to GoDaddy. thank me. Because anytime I have an idea, I buy a domain. It's, it's Yeah. It's one of my. Has it, uh, has it, has it paid off? No, <laughs> not yet. You're sitting on a gold mine. Yeah, I'm sitting on. I know that one day this will be. I'll be the domain king of yeah. the internet. No one's calling you for like juicyshorts.com. Yeah. Or like <laughs> I do have party, party shirts. shirts. Yeah, partyshirts.com. So yeah. So if anyone's interested, that's yeah. partyshirts.com. Yep, yep. And you can hit me up. Get it. Um, but you do have this journal that you know talking about like recycling or or you know applying the information that you know and putting it into a new project. Like we've been talking a lot about writing. Um, I think staring at a blank piece of paper sometimes can be overwhelming. I, I find that we all enjoy instruction and, and mentorship or guidance uh, when mm-hmm. it comes to tasks that feel overwhelming, um, like going to the gym. It's much easier with a trainer or going to a group fitness class than going by yourself. Yeah. Um, and this journal, the thing that I really love about it um, is the guidance that it gives you. Like even the tangibility, as you get into the journal, you tell some stories, you show your list, but you give these like 10 categories of life and prompt people to, to write down some of these um, items in these categories of life to develop their own list. Travel and adventure is one. The biggest, the yeah. Biggest? Oh, it's sometimes the easiest to yeah. think about. Mm-hmm. That's why it's first. Mm-hmm. I tried to go from like the easiest to the hardest. Sure. Yeah. Physical health, right? Mm-hmm. Material. So meaning like, what do you, what do you want to buy? Yeah. Like for me, I want a sauna. There you go. It's a goal of mine. I've written it down multiple times. I want to buy a sauna. And that's okay. That's yeah. why it's like, you want to I want a dream sauna. watch? Yeah. Great. Yeah. But the, 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 I want a sauna and I want a cold plunge. There you go. Yeah. Uh, so if anyone's out there. Soundcoldplunge.com yeah. maybe. Dot com, yeah. <laughs> well, the thing too, I think with materials to make sure that you're buying it for you. Yes. Like you're not buying yeah. it because you want a sauna to tell your friends you got a sauna. No, no, I want to sit in the sauna. Exactly. That's why this room, you guys can't feel it listening to this, but this room's incredibly hot right now. Our AC is broken. I was going to say, I thought you already got a yeah. sauna. Yeah, <laughs> it's this. Yeah. Good and thing I wore a terry cloth. Yeah, it's just also, a towel <laughs> that's soaked. We also deprive the guests of water uh, as <laughs> well. Show, yeah, so. while you're on the show until they run out of, Air, steam yeah, and, <laughs> steam yeah. and nutrition. Um, creative, so creativity. You know, do you want to take a painting class, write a book? Professional, um, financial, intellectual, mental health, relationships, and 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 uh, giving. 
And I think, you know, putting this framework around it allows you to think about your list. Whereas again, a bucket list can feel really overwhelming. It, it feels like it has to be the craziest things. Mm-hmm. The examples you give and kind of the guidance you give in this, in this um, journal is such an interesting way for you to scale what you've learned. And even going back to that, that first list you wrote, like how did that change your life? You know, how can you now um, impact others? So I, I would urge, um, you know, creators, especially in this world where we are, we're an untapped territory. We get to create and distribute by ourselves. We get to mm-hmm. just give ourselves to the internet in a way that never was possible so that we're an untapped territory, but it all comes back to your journey of self-discovery, your personal purpose, why, um, and being okay with reinventing. And, mm-hmm. and, um, the most importantly, um, which is something I've learned from talking to you and, and just in my own experience is write down why, write down why you're doing this stuff. What do you want to do? What's your list? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And I think that that's the, that's, that, that's why, so you, you write your list in the 10 categories, then you have your full list that's a true reflection of all the things that you want. And then once you want to start one at the back of the journal, there's a before and after page. And on that before and after page, you write down what it is. And then the first thing you do is, why is this important to me? Yeah. And then it's all different layers of accountability. Who's my accountability buddy? What's my deadline? What's my reward? Like it's important to have a reward so that you have a payoff. That's like you if you give yourself your favorite smoothie after you work out, like you'll go to work out just to have the smoothie because you mm-hmm. want that reward. And then the next piece is like, how can you make it as easy as possible? Like what are the simplest things that you can do in the next 48 hours to create your own inspiration through action? Because if you look at the top three barriers that stop us from achieving these personal passions, this comes out of research out of Cornell, it's there's no deadlines, which is why we push them. We think we have all this time. So we got to create accountability. Second problem, there's this feeling that we are waiting to feel inspired, but that inspiration just doesn't hit out of the blue or rarely. Yeah. So you actually have to create your own inspiration through action. So by taking these small steps, you build your own inspiration. You're the architect of the inspiration by taking action. And that's what I said before is like, we plan too much and forget that action is the plan. Just get out there, push yourself, forget what other people think take action. You'll learn as you go. And good things will happen when you push yourself into that place of being vulnerable. Because mm-hmm. at least people will respect you for just yeah. for trying. trying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? And then the last piece is the fear, the fear of what other people think or fear of failure. And this is the, the biggest barrier. And so it's looking at, okay, the fear of what other people think is something we're all going to feel. The truth is people are just not thinking about you as much as you think they are. <laughs> they're yeah, just like yeah, yeah, yeah. living their lives. They're thinking about what other people think about them. They're also more supportive. So like the only way that we cross things off our list is through the help of other people. Like people helped us the whole way. So people are more giving than, than you might think. And then this understanding that this, this fear is just normal. Like it's not, it's, you're going to yeah. wait till you die if you're waiting to, feel ready yeah. and you've overcome this fear. Like you overcome it by doing, by understanding that this is actually a normal feeling. This discomfort is growth. And so I, I like to actually like write down, like what are the real risks? Not the fears. Cause the fears are just like, they're going to be there, but what is that risk? Is it your livelihood? Is it your, your home? Is it the well being of your family? Is it your health? Like those are real risks. And if those are, you know, at risk, then you should probably maybe shouldn't do them. Right. But like, at least I first look at what is actually at stake. 
What's honestly at stake. Honestly. Yeah. yeah. Not ego. Yeah. 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 Um, Ben, this was fantastic. I want to close with a quote that I love. I'm just picking a random one, actually. Uh, I've never <laughs> read it before. Uh, but in, in, interspersed in your bucket list journal are quotes. Um, and I just really love this one. I think it represents the conversation and, um, you know, the spirit of this, this, this podcast. Um, Forget all the reasons why it won't work and believe the one reason why it will. I think that's, that's incredibly important, this belief. Uh, if you have something that you're thinking about that you want to happen, you know, like the, the, oh, well now I'm looking at the back of the book and it says impossible is possible. I should have read that one. So <laughs> first one was just the one on the way. Yeah. First one was the, wow. Good callback on. Um, so yeah, Ben, where can they get this book again? Writeyourlist.com. Yep. Or just search Bucketless Journal on Amazon and it'll come up. And where can you watch The Buried Life? Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus. But you don't have a deal there, so you're not. No, you know. they own MTV. So, yeah. you know, it's on Paramount Plus, but you can get it on Amazon. Yeah. You just have to buck up and pay $1.99 per episode. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. We no might joke. get a quarter of a yeah. cent on that <laughs> in 2090. <laughs> you know, legacy media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You gotta love it. Well, yeah. dude, thanks so much for telling your stories. Appreciate you coming on. So fun yeah. to be here. Thanks, Ben. Cheers. 